Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that smiling when you're in a stressful situation can minimize the effect of your body's response to that stress, even if you're faking your smile. There was a recent study that suggested that smiling actually changes your physical state. They looked at participants who held a neutral facial expression, and then they looked at participants who were told to smile. And those who smiled had lower heart rate levels when they recovered from a stressful activity. They even made these participants hold chopsticks in a manner that forced them to smile. And they didn't really say if they were holding them in their face or in their fingers, but it had to be like in their face, maybe like, you know, holding their face up. Wasn't quite sure from looking at the study, but they still had a better heart rate than those who were told don't smile. So when, you know, your parents are saying, don't you smile at me, young man, they probably weren't actually giving you good advice. So just smile, even if it's not really very much fun. And the old advice, grin and bear it, has scientific merit. At least now it does. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD+, and that helps you make energy, it helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD+, levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's guest is 
a pretty cool guy, young guy who's done some amazing things. It's Jake Ducey, who's written two books. And his first book, Into the Wild. Into the Wind. All right. I was just going to say, <laughs> I know your first book is Into the Wind. And the notes I took here say Into the Wild. I'm like, <laughs> autocorrect error right there, baby. Because I'm like, no, no, this is wrong as I said it. Because Into the Wild is <laughs> like that guy who died in Alaska, right? All right. Let me just correct what I typed right here because that's just horrible. So we could edit this, but we're not going to because this is Bulletproof Radio, and I am not infallible. I do make typos. <laughs> <laughs> so my apologies, Jake. <laughs> Your first book, Into the Wind. The reason it's interesting is, well, Jack Canfield said it was good, which is kind of unusual, and it's being made into a movie, which has not happened to the Bulletproof Diet, which also hit the top 300 books on Amazon. So that in itself is a really hard thing to do. So congratulations uh, on a first book doing that. My first book actually didn't. My first book was a pregnancy book called The Better Baby Book, and it didn't do anything useful on Amazon. Uh, so you got me beat there. Uh, but your second book, The Purpose Principles, is pretty interesting too. And you're the youngest motivational writer ever to sign a deal with a penguin and Random House. So basically you've gone from... Kind of a bum, I would say, <laughs> bumming around Thailand, hanging out, falling off cliffs, you know, that kind of thing, uh, into uh, someone who's become like a, a really serious motivational speaker. And, and so I want to figure out what makes you tick on today's show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. So one of the things that gets me just excited every day is I want to talk with people who, who unusually kick ass, right? So uh, we've talked with... Uh, you know, people who are high up in the, the TV industry, uh, like Brandon Routh, and I've talked with Ariana Huffington, and, and a bunch of scientists and researchers who are also studying people like that. And, and you fall into the category of someone who's, well, both studying people because you're a motivational speaker, and you look at what, what makes people work, but you're also in yourself because you've done this pretty early on, and, like, you've got something interesting going on. So you're sort of like a, a split between those two, where you're kicking ass, but you also look at people who kick ass, but I don't know how you did it. So you're going to get weird questions from me, and people who are, are listening will probably be like, what is Dave talking about? All right, they're coming. I believe you. So first up, you learned to write. You've, you've read about this in your book. By retyping your favorite books after you failed an English class, uh, you went to college because you played basketball, but you, then you dropped out, traveled the world, and I lied about falling off the cliff in Thailand. It was in Indonesia, but you spent a lot of time in Thailand, and I, I know I've spent some time in Thailand too. So... Tell me about your journey. Like, how the heck did you get where you are? Because it doesn't sound like you did it in a normal way. No, I did it in a totally not normal way. You know, I went to college to play basketball, and I thought, you know, basketball was – it was really something that allowed me to pass my classes, basically, so I could stay eligible even in high school. And I thought, you know, I'll go to school, and I'll study business, and I'll go work for some corporation, and I'm tall, so I can go sell something for some company that I don't care about. <laughs> And then I'll get all this stuff that I don't really need, and then I'll finally be happy when I can retire after I gamble my entire life, betting that one day I'll be able to retire. In an economics class, I asked my teacher why we couldn't audit the Federal Reserve freshman year of college. My teacher basically told me to shut up, and that's when I started thinking that the educational system wasn't the most conducive place for my learning. And I found a couple books, Eckhart Tolle's A New Earth, Jack Canfield's Success Principles. And I was like, well, why have I never heard this in my entire life? And 
two months later, three months later, I was on another path. And by the end of freshman year of college, I just started backpacking. So, so basically these two books sucked you out of the machine. Yeah. These two books sucked me out of the machine because I never under, I had never, I never thought that there was consciousness within me or that everything was made of energy, that there was something other than you do this, you do this, you do this, then you die. Well, they're, they're going to have to burn those books right away. <laughs> we, we can't have people coming out of this. I mean, who, who's going to do all the labor? Yeah. No. Uh, so congrats on figuring out that, that there's a world's more interesting than, than they tell you it is, which, which is in and of itself pretty remarkable at, at 19, but also takes a lot of guts. You know, you've got a scholarship, you know, you're tall and being tall is a gift. I tell you, <laughs> by the way, how tall, how tall are you? Like six, three, six, four. Okay. So we're about the same height. And, uh, uh, but yeah, you, you, you do get that unfair, uh, pay raise that no one talks about this. If you're tall, you, you get like paid 10% more than short people. It, it just happens. Like we don't, it's not like a tall mafia thing. Okay. So you got this going for you, but you've got college, you've got a scholarship, which is pretty amazing given that college costs more than like cars and houses and stuff these days. And to just be like, screw that noise. I'm out of here. Okay. So information is one thing. There's a lot of college students who understand this. And, and like, I, I, th I feel like there must be more, but I'm afraid to, to make the leap. What made you not afraid or at least more afraid of staying than going? Like, like why did you decide to drop out and do this? I'd say two things. The first thing is when you confront your actual mortality and you literally realize that you're going to die soon, it makes you realize I literally am going to die. We're never told that. Like we just, it's implied that like we're going to live for forever or something. And when you realize you're going to die and you also, at my age, I was a little bit more cynical of, of the world at that time. Well, what if the economic system falls apart and the world goes into total chaos and my whole life is ruined because I sat in this desk. The second thing is that I realized there's a difference between learning it and living it. And generally, we spend most of our time learning it. We listen to podcasts. We read the books. Me, myself, I had a whole Word document full of my favorite quotes that I could tell you, memorize. Yet I wasn't living an inspired life. And living it is often taking steps past that fear because you know that something greater is, is there for you. You have this intuitive feeling. And I realized if I actually wanted to live a fulfilling life, then I had to live it rather than just merely learn it. So, so the impetus for this was the Indonesian cliff diving championships? Was that... <laughs> yeah, that was. Okay, so tell me about your near-death experience. Well, I had actually uh, lost my wallet before then. So I had a passport and uh, I met these locals and I they were trying to sell me stuff on the corner in Indonesia. All the tourists, as you know, make their living off, off of, or all the locals make their living off of tourists. So I met these guys and they took me to another island, Lombok, because they wanted to take me to their home village. We were on Bali. We took the boat across and we got on the back of their little motorcycles and we headed way outside of town and there's nothing out there except for rice fields. You can't see a single building anywhere and it's starting to pour rain. So he tells us in the distance, we're going to go up that mountain over there. And I just see this giant green mountain that's poking into these huge rain clouds. We start getting higher and higher up. And I'm sure you and, and anyone else who's been outside of the country has learned often hiking trails are not hiking trails. <laughs> there is no trail. And so we get up to the top of this mountain and we park the bikes in the mud and they say, we're here. Okay. 
So I'm like, okay, where are we going? And there's these huge eight, 10 foot boulders or so. And we're just climbing up these boulders covered in moss in the rain to get up to a waterfall up in the distance. And we get up there after like 30 minutes of climbing and it's just changes. Like you were speaking earlier about your heartbeat slowing down. First time in my life, I felt my heartbeat was actually at the pace it should be at. I can't see anything but nature. It's a total reset, having such an amazing time. But we have to head down to take the boat back to Bali because we need to get back before the sunset, the last boat that will take us back. And as we're coming down, I mean, it's pouring rain at this point, and we're just climbing one boulder after another straight down. Moss is everywhere, and I decide... I'm going to walk more careful than I've ever walked in my entire life because there are giant boulders, and if I fall off that, that is a 10, 12-foot neck-breaking, back-crunching, jaw-smashing fall. All right, I'm walking really slow and careful, and they're going super fast down below me, and as soon as I take another step, I slip off the moss, and when I slipped off the moss, I just fell straight off the boulders. And instinctually, I covered my head up, and I was like, I'm about to break my neck. I'm about to crack my jaw. Something bad is about to happen. And I can hear them yelling my name. And everything goes into slow motion at that second. It's a fall for a second, but it feels like 15, 20, 30 seconds where I'm thinking about everything. Am I going to die out here? I'm thinking about my travels, my life. And I'm like, okay, well, at least like I, I was like living life on my own terms. Like if I'm going to like die or something bad's about to happen. And then I get smashed into the crevice and I like, whoa, is this like what death is like? And I, I finally open my eyes. And when I open my eyes, my arms bleeding, my legs bleeding, and I'm kind of like out of it. And after, you know, 20, 30 seconds, I can hear them yelling my name and I come to and I'm like, okay, I am actually alive right now. And I kind of move my arms, my legs, I'm kind of stuck inside this crevice and I landed on my side, thankfully, instead of my head. And I realized I'm stuck inside a crevice of these boulders. And when I roll all the way over, one of the guys I was traveling with named Ari jumped after me. And I could hear him yelling my name and just jumping off the boulders. And I wasn't alive when my mom birthed me, uh, but I like to say that Ari jumping after me was the most courageous thing that I've ever seen a human do, except for my mom birthing me. And I just was crying on the ground because I didn't really even know this guy. And he was so pleased that an outsider had let him travel and take him out like this, that he jumped after me and he couldn't get to me. And I was stuck inside this crevice. And after a few seconds, he's yelling, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And the other two guys up there are telling me, get out, get out, like grab onto my hands. And I'm not going to grab onto their hands. I'm six foot four and Indonesians are generally <laughs> five foot two. And so they're yelling for me to jump. And I'm still in like total shock. My arms, my legs, I know I'm hurt. But at this point, I'm like, nothing is broken. I'm okay. Um, like I'm not going to like pass out in the next five seconds and die. And after a few more minutes, I get up high enough in the rocks where they all crevy themselves down and basically use each other as rope to levy themselves down far enough where I jump. Next thing I know, I'm standing on the solid ground and I'm yelling at these guys that hardly speak English, telling them, you saved my life, you saved my life. And they're like, and that changed my whole life. Um, 
I didn't really, I was in so much shock that night. I was crying and I didn't know. And then I finally thought of these guys I met in the Swedes in, in Australia. And these Swedes that I met were telling me I should go to 14 day silent meditation with them in Thailand. And at the time I was like, silent meditation. Well, can you fart in there? Oh, well, I'm not going if you can't fart. That's so next thing I knew I was in silent meditation and, and it changed my life. <laughs> so, so I did a four or not for did 10 days silent meditation in Nepal, uh, the Buddhist monastery. And it was a vegetarian, a high lentil meditation. <laughs> and I, I do believe that flatulence is a meditation disturbing effect in a room full of people. I, I'm sorry. I noticed this firsthand experience. So yeah, apparently that happens. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, no, mine wasn't lentils, but uh, I, I also uh, had a little bit of gas there. <laughs> yeah, meditation and tilting don't go together. Uh, someone's someone's going to tweet that, and that's just embarrassing. But hey, that's just the way it is. You also got into hatha yoga and uh, and journaling, and you did this as a pretty young guy, so you're really you're really focused. And it's because you had this like I'm going to die. You saw your life flash ahead of you, and and it's pretty well pretty well established. People who experience a near death experience oftentimes come back. Um, not that you were actually dead, but you sort of come back from the experience, just saying like maybe there's something deeper or more because. How many how many nineteen year olds have a sense of mortality, right? Yeah, how many people, by and large, I think, uh, employed of Americans or Westerners, you know? And that's what made me come back and ultimately write. I was like, I'm traveling for no reason. I'm running away from my problems and my fears, and you know, I realized that I w it was really more about offering value to the world than stamping my passport in as many places. How old are you now? I'm uh, 23. 23, and this happened four years ago when you were 19. Yeah, this happened four years ago, yeah. So in those four years, you've written a couple books. Uh, you've, you've done a lot of things, but what's your biggest achievement today? My biggest achievement today is that oh, to date, I'm... Not just today, but yeah. Oh, like, yeah. To, yeah, that's what I, that's oh, what oh, I okay, meant. Cool. <laughs> I'd say my biggest achievement to date. I would say is a, is two things, uh, wanting to be a writer and failing English classes and having no idea how to write. And <laughs> second, I'd say three things. Second thing is finally feeling comfortable in my skin and excited to wake up. You know, I didn't feel like that for most of my life. And the third thing is I'm doing hundreds and hundreds of high school speeches now. And so that's where I, I always wanted to be able to reach the kids, which is a bureaucracy and super hard to get into. And I finally got through. So, so this is really worth talking about. And I, I would never feel comfortable in my skin until I was about 32. So how did you do it so fast? I really like that quote by Albert Einstein, try not to be a person of success, but a person of value. I tried my whole life to be a person of success. I wanted to be number one in the box scores every day in basketball. I led San Diego in three-point shooting. Everything was based off numbers, stats, rankings. I wanted to become a successful person. And I shifted my focus to become a person of value. And that, made, that gave me the sense of significance that every human being wants. But often, I, at least for me, I was seeking it out of numbers and success and acknowledgement. And I found, wow, I found my significance out of offering value and being of service. By the way, the amount to which we're paid is in proportion to the value that we add according to the marketplace. So I started to make more money than I ever had. And so I think it really centered out at, at finding purpose out of being of value in some form. Who taught you that the value that you get paid is equal to the value that you provide? 
the first place that I think I, that I heard that from was probably Jim Rohn. And then it clicked with me. Oh, man, I remember that Albert Einstein quote to be somebody of value. Probably uh, Jim Rohn. Uh, I read it in T. Harv Eker's book, Secrets of a Millionaire Mind. Yeah. And, and then I clicked on all my places in my life. As a 19-year-old, I got paid $0 for 60-minute keynotes. And now I get paid 10000 and counting for keynotes. Well, if I look at it, I was just offering less value. I didn't know how to speak. I knew nothing about uh, uh, what I was saying, and I practiced the skill and honed it, and I've become more valuable at it. It's funny that you talk about practice and honing and, and how you're giving all these talks at high schools. Um, early in my career, when my, like, geez, early 20s, I, I was scared of, of public speaking. I, I actually stuttered a little bit. Uh, not, like, super bad, but enough that I noticed it and I was self-conscious about it. And... I decided I was going to get good at this. So I actually did junior achievement where you go and you teach high school students uh, for just one hour a week about economics. And I tell you, I've also lectured for five years at the University of California. I ran a program there while I was working full time about like how the Internet works, like the guts of the Internet for geeks. But I did that because I wanted to learn how to teach and I wanted to learn how to speak. But the hardest audience of my entire life was those damn high school students. Right. They are so inattentive. <laughs> and they'll, if, if you don't, if you lose their lose their attention, they'll talk to each other like like they'll throw things at each other. And that was the most challenging thing. And you are now basically cutting your teeth as a speaker with the hardest audience you could ever do. Is this on purpose or did it just happen that way? I, well, I always wanted to get into high schools and I always laugh about it because I'll go like Last month, I had two gigs at household Fortune 500 companies, and then I turn around and speak to the, an entire public school, minus the juniors, 2,000 kids. I'm like, this is the lights go off in the middle of the talk, and like, it's so much harder, and it's I'm so much more scared, and uh, so it's not on purpose, but I've realized now, I want to, I'm 23, the kids connect with yeah. me, you know, I'm not an adult to them, and so... I see that I can be of a lot of value to them, so I want to do that. But I've also recognized it's going to help me be able to become better in my craft in other areas because it's so much harder to get a kid's attention. So, so who taught you how to speak? Well, first I learned through uh, – I had never had a speaking coach, and I did hundreds. I drove all up, up and down the coast. I self-published my first book and filled my car with books. I spoke in cafes to one person, showed up zero people here, there, and often one person. A lot of times no one would show up to my events, but I did like a hundred talks. I was doing two a day. Then I finally got a, a, a speaking coach and I, I use him to this day. His name's Patrick Holmes. He's done uh, 10,000 colleges and uh, thousands of, of corporations. And that's my, he's my speaking coach. That's so really helped me. Having a speaking coach for people who are listening who are interested in just being more effective at work or in, in going down a path of that, if you're going to be an A player practice like you're doing, man, that helps. But I found in my life having really high-end speaker training is, is one of the most important things you can do. And then the 10,000 hours thing, you just you crank out the talks. And after a while, uh, for me at least, I, I lost the the sort of terror that maybe led to a flow state. And then it, it's with heart rate variability training. Like there's a sense of ease where you go in and you're like, I've got this. And not only do I, do I have it, um, like I, I'm going to deliver immense value on multiple levels. And like, that's why I'm here. And, and you're just not concerned about it. Um, are, are you there? Did you still sweat before you go on stage in high school? 
Actually, my last one that I just had was my biggest one, and that was the first. I was nervous before because they had told me it was 500. Then they told me all the seniors needed to log more hours at school, and there was a mistake. So I was like, does that mean all of them are really mad right now? And he's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, I got really nervous. But when I got into state, like you said, like understanding the art of speaking, um, from my coach has helped me to be able to be in a state of flow so much more. I definitely get nervous. I, I like, I'm definitely a firm believer that that can happen. So I definitely feel it though. Yeah. So, so you're being mentored right now by a couple of guys. I, I respect uh, a lot, John Gray and Jack Canfield. And I, I don't know Jack personally, but John Gray spoke at the anti-aging research group. I run SBHI and I get to have dinner uh-huh. with him and, Dude, what what a gentleman! And I, I've written about him before. He's about to come back on Bulletproof Radio, but I, I've always had enormous respect for the way he looks at relationships and biochemistry, and, and just just he's a good soul. Uh, how did you get hooked up with guys at that level? Like these are both like serious A players, you know. And, and you're let, let's face it, you know, you're you're still kind of a kid, like you're saying. <laughs> teenagers still do that, so it's hard to get the attention of of, of guys at, at their level. What was your trick? Yeah, well. The foreword to my new book, The Purpose Principles, is by Jack Canfield, and he tells a story in it of how we met, which is I was just got back from traveling. I heard in one of Jack's books to write down your top 101 goals. I didn't know if I believed it. I thought I'd play the game, so I wrote down number nine. Become mentored by and endorsed by Jack Canfield. <laughs> and just before Into the Wind, my self-published book came out, uh, somebody gave me a call and they said, hey, Jack Campfield is emceeing this event. There's 600 or so people. It's in L.A. You should buy a ticket. I looked online. I almost couldn't afford it, but I decided to buy the ticket. And when I showed up, it was in the ballroom of a really nice hotel. And I realized two problems. The first was that you're not dressed up when you have a corduroy suit on and a wrinkled blue shirt. And the second thing that I learned was that it's really hard to build rapport when there's 600 people in the room and Jack's the face for the event and there's a line just to take pictures with them. And I didn't want a picture. I needed to build rapport. My seat was on the top level of the event and it was one of those where you bought the ticket beforehand or when you bought the ticket, you also clicked for your food. So they would deliver the food in a certain, you know, 30, 40 minute time frame. And the night's going on. I'm starting to get nervous. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? There's so many people here. And he finally steps off the mic and heads down back to his seat. And I'm like, I'm going for it. And I head down my my floor. He's down at the center of the ballroom. And there's these tables of about six. And I start going and somebody gets up to grab his attention. And I'm like, oh. And I like try to like look like I'm not that weird. Like I'm not like stalking him, you know. (laughs) And then I I kind of like I'm looking out of the corner of my eye. And finally he goes back to his seat and I'm super nervous, but I'm like 10, you know, 10 seconds of courage, 10 seconds of courage. I walk over and I tap him on the shoulder and I say, hi, Jack, my name's Jake Ducey and you inspired this. How did I inspire you? He said, in your book, The Success Principles, you say when someone says no, you say next. SW, SW, SW. Some will say no, some will say yes. So what? Someone's waiting. I use these to write this book. I self-publish it and now I'm going on a tour. And then he's like, Brittany, my wife. And his wife's the seat next door. And turns out my his wife and mine and hitting it off, food down. And I'm like, oh. you know, I don't want to annoy this guy. And so I like start to 
turn to, to leave while the food comes down. And he's like, hey, Jake, wait, aren't you going to eat that? And I was so excited, I didn't realize that the person to his left in a fully uh, occupied room had left for dinner. And so I didn't, and the waiter still put the food down. And the waiter came at the exact time I finally had the impulse to go. I sat and ate dinner with him, we hit it off. And, and so Jack and I developed a, a, a nice friendship and Jack introduced me to John at one of his birthday parties. Uh, so that that was random, right? Or maybe not random at all. You know, people say psychologists tell us 90% of our life is governed by our subconscious mind. Subconscious mind is imprinted by by thoughts and by writing things down. I wrote something down. I put it out of my conscious mind. Then I was at an event and consciously I was telling myself I'm not going to be able to meet him. Consciously I was telling myself, man, I'm not going to have enough time. Then I finally get an intuition, which comes from the subconscious mind. At that moment, I walk down subconsciously behind the scenes. I didn't know, but the waiter was coming to his table out of all places and the person left to his left. And consciously, I didn't notice the seat was empty. But all of these things happened together to help me reach a goal that I had. Yeah, that, that whole writing goals down thing is, is amazing. Uh, when I was 16... I read Thinking Grow Rich, you know, the, the Napoleon Hill book, uh, which is kind of the original book like this, at least in, in modern literature. And I wrote down, I, I want to be a, a millionaire by the time I'm, I'm 23. And, and I wrote, you know, I, I want to have a million dollars in net worth. Like I wrote it with intent and all that. And I put it on my mirror and, you know, read it every morning. And, and it's actually, it's a shallow goal, to be honest. I'm just, it, it's money. Um, it's nice to have a million dollars, but it's not your purpose for being. And when I was 23, I totally didn't have a million dollars. I'm like, ah! But when I was 26, I made six million dollars. No I'm like, way! Holy crap! Yeah. But what I didn't write in there was and keep it. So I lost it when I was 28. So, but but there you go. There really is value in uh, in writing down what you want. And I, I actually don't believe that was random. And people can say that's not scientific. It's just my observation in my life is the things I focus on tend to happen. Like they don't always happen right away, but. It doesn't look random, and maybe I'm convincing myself. I'm just happier if I think that, but that would be a value too, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And there's there's tons of doctors, especially in in other countries, that perform have performed hundreds and hundreds of surgeries, from removal of tumors to amputations, without any without subduing their patients with medicine and only under hypnosis. So it, there's definitely a power in the subconscious mind. That's as, as, as anesthesia you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it's, it's done, and it, it's kind of scary that that's possible. It's also yeah. really cool because it means the body's that hackable, and you don't have to do it with chemicals. You can do it with the electricity or just with the mind. It's, it's a pretty cool world we live in. You write about something uh, called seriouslessness. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I thought it was funny that you started off this with your fact about smiling. I'm writing a new book right now called Profit Off Happiness. And the second chapter of the book is called Share a Smile. And I, I also, when I wake up in the morning, I just go like this. And it seems stupid because when we take ourselves seriously, it seems dumb. But the reality is that I think we would find a, a lot more 
peace and happiness in life if we realize that we're all going to die and and that as bill hicks says this is just a ride so i think the more playful we can be uh with ourselves at times and that doesn't mean to not sit down and and work but the more relaxed we are and in a state of joy we are the more the less we're clenching our fists our jaws and every time we're doing that we're we're trapping energy that could be focused towards uh, our objectives or towards our well-being. And so seriousness is an important quality because over the last 50 years, America's depression rate has increased by a thousand percent. There's too many people that are stressed out. And so I think it's an important component. All right. I, I got to point this out. You dropped out of college. You traveled around Indonesia. You went to 14 day meditation retreat in Thailand and you don't have any kids that you know of. <laughs> No, <laughs> it's pretty easy to talk about being not stressed, right? Because like pretty much your cost of living is two bucks a day because you know where to go to live like that. What's going to happen when things get a little bit more complex? When, when there's people counting you, they don't eat if you don't perform. Yeah, no, I think, that's a, I think that's a super important thing. I think one of the most important things that a, a human being can, can do, especially if other people are depending on them, is remembering that, all the little things create the big difference, whether it's 30 minutes of sweating in the gym, whether it's while you're driving to just go like this, whether it's take, if you don't have 10 minutes to meditate, five minutes of breath work or three minutes of breath work. These are all important components that all add up to releasing stress in other ways. So, so now we get to talk about breath work, which is awesome. So I, I've spent a lot of time learning breath work. I've done advanced yoga, art of living for, for five or so years. And I just interviewed Alberto Viotto, a well-known uh, medical anthropologist and, and shaman who just wrote a, a soon-to-be New York Times bestselling book, we think, One Spirit Medicine, one you should read, by the way. Um, and we talked about two different breaths. So this is like right on the tip of my brain here. What is your favorite breath? My favorite breath is this. In for five or six seconds, hold for one or two and feel the energy in my body out for a little bit more than I breathe in. A deep breath, the opposite of a shallow breath. <laughs> All right. Now, as I watch your breathing, I'm seeing smoke waft in front of the, in front of the camera. Are you smoking something that, that you're not sharing? <laughs> it's incense. <laughs> I was guessing it was incense, but <laughs> that's too funny. Right when you're breathing, just smoke <laughs> wafted up. It was it was a classic moment. If you're not watching this on YouTube, you should be. <laughs> awesome. So uh, so walk me through that one more time, or tell me, am I breathing through my nose, through my mouth, for how long? What am I thinking? Am, am I you know chanting Om? Like, is there any other stuff you do in there? I like to breathe in through my nose, okay. in through. Six. The reason that I do a, a, a longer number than one or two is because I think often if we are really aware of the times when we're stressed and the times we feel deep peace, oftentimes, you know, we give out like that ah, when we feel good. That's a deep breath. Oftentimes I've found in my own life when I'm stressed, when I'm having a creative block, when I hear bad news that I'm reacting to, I'm not breathing. And so I try and deepen my breath and often even make it deeper than it normally would be. So I go like in for like six, like through my nose, like, and instead of saying things, I try and feel my energy when I hold it. I try and feel it because that brings me back to the moment. That brings me back to awareness rather than concepts and the matrixes of our mind. And I just try and hold that for a second or two because it really brings me into 
the, the life that I am, not just the concept that I am. And then I usually breathe out through my nose after like a second or, two, or back out my mouth because I feel like I get more air when I go out my when I go out my mouth. It gets more air out of my lungs and gets all the old energy out. And I try and do that a little longer than my inhales so I can push most of the air back out. And do you do this like for a set period of time each day or just that time of day? Well, I meditate every day and I used to do set times where I would like literally have a timer. Now I just do it sometimes for five minutes, sometimes for an hour and never at set set times anymore. I try to do it once in the morning, once at night. If I go in the sauna after the gym, I get in there and do it. But I, those that's just one breath that takes 20 seconds. You can do that in a cubicle at work. You know, you can do that in the elevator at work. You can do that in the car while you're driving. You can do that while someone's speaking to you, while your child is speaking to you, taking a, a deep breath and reconnecting yourself. You can do that at all times. It's not something that you need to sit in lotus posture in order to in order to breathe. So in the shower, you know, the shower is a really big resetting time for me where I look like an idiot and I'm smiling and breathing really deep, but it <laughs> reconnects me. Do you ever do it on stage? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the first things that I learned from my speaking coach was that what's less important is what I say and more important is the energy that I project. And the only way to project a heart's uh, heart connecting energy that will cause transformation is to actually connect with my audience. So that that breath is gives me one second. Usually I don't pick up the mic and I'm like, hey, I like hold it and I look around for a sec. And then like I'll start because it slows me down so I don't start to speed up right away, which is an easy thing to do. Now, it, it's kind of funny because what you're talking about there is, is sort of anti-logic, right? Like, like the heart you bring is more important than the, you know, than the topic. Uh, and when you talk with, with top speakers or top like performing artists, like uh, I had a chance to talk with, with Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind, you know, lead singer who's just a, a, a powerhouse on stage if you ever if you ever seen him live, and it's sa- same thing. Like he he does breathing things and like like very specific preparations because it takes energy and you're emoting energy when when you're speaking or singing or, or performing. And as a, a relatively experienced public speaker myself, yeah, like it is about the energy that you put out and you know the words are part of it, but they're not the primary part. And it's not like. You could be like programmed to have perfect body language. If you're terrified inside, your body language <laughs> is perfect and your words are perfect. You're still terrified, and they don't you don't connect with the audience. So that that's a, a skill that wasn't natural for me, um, but it is it's very natural now. And it sounds like you've had a really good advice early on to to grow that. So kudos, man. That's that's quite unusual, and it's it's a lifelong skill. Oh, thanks very much. So I don't I don't think you sound crazy, even if people listening. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That thank you. <laughs> So talk with me about Bob Dylan. What's up with Bob? Oh, man, I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. Bob Dylan, first, I was into poetry before I wrote. I wrote a lot of my first book in poem formats, and then I went back and turned it into prose. The first times I expressed myself creatively was through poetry. One of the first people that I really came to like was Bob Dylan. You know, I'm gathering you're mentioning this because I write about him in The Purpose Principles on numerous occasions. You know, he was a lot of people hate that guy's voice, you know, and so many people say that 
that were around him a lot that he was not the most talented, but he was the guy that always strummed the guitar. He developed consistency, which was something that really aided him, and and nonconformity. He did something that no one was doing in the style of lyrics that he wrote and his sounds. He didn't uh, contain it into one thing. So I really like, especially that we talk a lot about productivity on podcasts like these and. And I think that he's the antithesis of someone who used consistency in order to create long-term results. The dude's still touring and, and uh, all that. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty remarkable words. And I actually like his voice, but man, that harmonica can get a little bit grating. Like, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not so sure that harmonicas have a place in, in modern <laughs> society. Like harmonicas and banjos both should be approached with ex- extreme caution. Uh, just, you know, just me saying that. By the way, my dad plays banjo. So I, that was just a slight, slight joke there. Instead, but, uh, of, the, uh, instead of the warning... Uh, uh, explicit language discretion. <laughs> it could say warning banjo. <laughs> explicit banjo. That would be great. All right. Since we're doing banjo jokes, so I didn't think we'd get to it. I, I got to ask you this, and, and I'm going to piss off like half the banjo players, both of them. And uh, what instrument do you use or, or tool do you use to tune a banjo? I have no idea, actually. It's wire cutters. <laughs> oh, Sorry. I had to say it. All right. Uh, enough about banjos, but uh, yeah, thumbs up for Bob Dylan. Quite quite a thinker, and the idea of nonconformity is is cool because you gotta you gotta walk your path. So, so, what are your plans for your next book? Tell me more about what you're working on. Yeah, the new book's called Profit Off Happiness. I actually just signed the contract with with Penguin Random House yesterday, so it'll be out spring or uh, spring or June 2016. And this is a book that's going to be aimed towards a business and leadership. And, you know, I, I speak at uh, a lot of corporations and I, so I see a lot of interesting things, especially being a, you know, kind of a, kind of a hippie and not someone that's accustomed to the work environment. And so, you know, 75% of Americans reported in the Gallup polls that they're actively disengaged from their jobs. Two million of Americans are consistently quitting well-paying jobs because they aren't liking, they're not inspired, they're not empowered, they aren't liking their bosses. The U.S. economy is losing billions of dollars a year specifically from productivity loss. And so this new book is about uh, breeding leadership and connection by the value we're offering. The first chapter is, is about adding value for profit. The rest of them are about connection, sharing a smile, uh, lending an ear. These are the things that ultimately empower people. And so I share some stories. I got to spend some time with uh, Marian Edelman Wright. She was Martin Luther King's lawyer. And I got to spend some time with her. So I asked her, what makes Mart- why was Martin such a good leader? And I'm expecting her to say, his voice was just incredible. She says he would sit and just listen to people. And so that's why people found their own value, and that's why people stepped up and were inspired by him. Today, we're at a, we're at a crisis of leaders, and it, you, you don't need to write a book or create a billion-dollar prod, product to make a difference in the world. I think it really comes back to connection, and I think it comes back to connecting with people in the eyes and smiling at them and offering our value you don't necessarily need to create a product to jump your income. You can become uh, the most valuable energy. I go into companies and they always point out their most valuable players. They always show me their MVPs. 
and they say, well, uh, we're having a lot of problems with team leadership and this and that. Well, what team's having the most problems? They point out who their MVP is, that team. Uh, so who's your, MB, who's your MBE? Uh, what's that? Most valuable energy? And it's like always someone that is overlooked and they give the MVP to whoever logs the most hours. And I think that it's really important to, to recognize that we can impact the world in a really positive way by the energy we're putting out and by the little interactions. When we go to the cashier at the store and the cashier says, how are you doing? And we don't say anything and we just hand them the money. So the next time the cashier, the next person comes up, the cashier doesn't even bother to ask. All these things make a big imprint into the dopamine receptors in our brain. With the lack of connection, we're not as inspired, we're not as present. And this has an impact on our productivity and stuff like that. Yeah, people oftentimes like like they'll come up to you on airplanes and, and all like they recognize me from from bulletproof radio or wherever. Uh, and to me, that's kind of weird. Like I'm a computer geek on my whole career, and, and you know, there's probably 500 other computer geeks from my little speck of technology, and we like all know each other. But this is different, and they're always like, "Oh, sorry to bother you." And I'm like, I don't think they quite get it, but like I. I like to help people. So like I'm on an airplane, I was going to do anything anyway, but you want to ask me a question? Like, it's actually my pleasure to answer it. Like, okay. Like if it's knowledge you don't have and I can give it to you and it's going to take five minutes and it's going to help. It's, it's a good interaction versus like, don't bother me. Yeah. You know? So I guess it depends on your perspective because there are times when it's like, don't bother me because I have to be somewhere because I made a promise that I was going to go on stage. And if you stop me now, like I'm not going to be where I'm going to, you know, I said I was going to be, but uh, for the most part, you really can be a glass half full or glass uh, half empty kind of person. And I, I found I'm a lot happier if the glass is full, even if I'm completely self-deceiving myself, which I don't think I am. What about you? Is the glass actually <laughs> half full or are you deceiving yourself? Uh, I don't. Sometimes I wonder if the glass actually exists or if it's. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a fair answer. And that, that actually brings us up to the the question that. Uh, I've asked every guest on the show, it's sort of the wind down question. And that is based on all the stuff you've learned and all the things you know, uh, top three recommendations you have for someone who wants to kick more ass at life. So you want to perform better at whatever it is you're here to do. These are the three most important things you should know. What have you learned so far? One, start smiling more even when there's nothing to make you smile. Instead of waiting for something to make you smile, smile, because that even has an impact on sales. People subconsciously sense that energy. And so that is an impact in, in anywhere that you're working and it makes you happy as an in, happier as an individual. Smiling more is a great way to become a more influential person. And number two, I would say is to take deep breaths, especially in the face of nervousness and fear. Because when you take a deep breath, it can often give you a step back to realize that while you actually may feel that fear, that doubt, that insecurity, it's not something that needs to prevent you from taking action. And the third thing that I would say is try to be a person of value, as Albert Einstein said, rather than success. Because you you can increase by the level in which you grow as an individual, you can then offer more value, which will make you more money, but will actually, what will actually make you happy is who you become as a person. So they're not separate. I grew up thinking it was like, you become successful or and you sacrifice like happiness in life, but you can have both of them at the same time by growing it as an individual. Beautiful advice, um, thanks Jake. 
Where can people find out more info? Like give me your URL, your book titles, all that kind of stuff that we're going to put in the show notes for people to download them. But people are driving in their car and are going to completely sanely, but illegally probably type this into their <laughs> cell phones. If you're um, driving in your car, pull over to the nearest Barnes and Noble and look for my book, uh, The Purpose Principles. Hold it, on, did you just piss off Amazon? <laughs> oh my God, man. All right. Uh, well, my name is Jake Ducey. My last name is D as in David, U C E Y, jakeducey.com. It's Jake Ducey on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. D is in David, U C E Y. And on Amazon, you could type in Jake Ducey, find the purpose principles, is my new book with Penguin. Into the Wind is my self published book, which you'll only find on, on Amazon. And my new book, The Profit, Profit Off Happiness. So if you search Jake Ducey, you could. Find me on the World Wide Web. Nice. I've heard of the interweb. It's a pretty cool place. <laughs> it is a cool place. Jake, thanks for coming on Bulletproof Radio. Totally appreciate your time today. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's show, which I think you probably did, at least I did, I'd really appreciate it if you went out and checked out Jake's book, Into the Wind, not wild, like I said earlier, and uh, download it, read it. I think you'll find something of value there. And while you're at it, go to the Bulletproof store and check out something that I haven't even plugged ever. I don't think on Bulletproof Radio. We have a new screen protector that goes on your iPhone that blocks the narrow range of blue light that's most responsible for melatonin suppression. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.